can I afford to stay here? What else am I giving up by staying here? I think that when you look at it from that point of view, you ultimately can make a decision that will set you up best for the future, as opposed to just staying in a place that you feel comfortable in in the short term. And, And divorce is not easy. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I am your host, Stacey Francis. And today we're going to be talking about my favorite asset, real estate. If you like real estate, if you have questions about real estate, well, you're in the right spot. We have one of the top experts in this area joining us today. Ian Steinberg is a matrimonial attorney and he works with Berkman, Bachner, Newman and Shine. And focuses on litigation, negotiation, and settlement of divorce cases. But what you don't know about Ian is that he worked at a New York City real estate firm representing building owners and courts throughout all of New York City. And so he lived and breathed everything that you would need to know about real estate on a daily basis. So he brings to that today a great knowledge that's going to answer all your questions about real estate and divorce. Questions like how the equity in the marital home are going to be divided in divorce. And if you listen in, you'll hear what happens if there's separate property. One of you put money in before you got married or maybe from a inheritance. He also talks about issues with one spouse buying out the other and making sure that you're not being stuck with an asset that A, you can't afford or B, has expenses that you just didn't plan for. And make sure that you stay to the end where he talks about snafus that he's seen, couples who have made mistakes with real estate, not being able to get a mortgage when one person buys out the other and many other issues to be aware of. I'm so happy that you're here joining us for this conversation. It's not a long one, but it's all very, very valuable. And I know that you're going to walk away with so much knowledge, setting you up, teeing you up for success to make good decisions about the most valuable asset that you most likely have. So without further ado, please help me welcome our special guest today, Ian Steinberg. Ian, thank you for being here to talk about all things real estate. And, you know, I know that a lot of the women who listen to Financially Ever After, to be honest, most divorcing couples, their biggest asset is their home. So obviously a lot of questions about that that we're going to be talking today. So thank you for being here. I know you have an expertise and, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your background and how you came to know so much about real estate and real estate law. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You're right. uh, People's biggest asset usually is their real estate. And 
for me, prior to becoming a matrimonial and family law attorney, I actually spent five years as a real estate attorney, which I think I don't know too many other matrimonial uh, attorneys who had that kind of path, but it's kind of given me this ability to have some other additional knowledge about how to deal with people's biggest assets, which is their real estate. And spent a lot of time representing building owners and doing closings and leasings and you know, just kind of having this idea of how it works, especially in New York City, which is, uh, you know, its own particular challenge, but in New York in general. And obviously it weaves in with divorce because, you know, it's a, it's a really important thing and, and it's usually people's biggest asset that they now have to divide and you can't really just split a house in half and, and it makes it, it makes it challenging. I know. And, and I have to say the thing about real estate that's different than other assets. I mean, I don't get a warm and fuzzy feeling from my checking account. I mean, I I like the money in there, right? And so that gives me a little bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling, but like, it's not the same feeling as a house. It's just not. And, you know, my husband and I went through the process this last summer of buying a property in Vermont. And I will tell you, it was like, a child to me. Like, of course, not that level of like importance to me, but you really get an emotional attachment to real estate, understandably. And do you see that with the clients that come to you? And this is kind of a leading question. Does that ever get in the way of them making good decisions around the real estate? Yeah. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth with this whole emotional attachment. And and I recently switched my bank account from Citibank to Chase. It means nothing to me. It means I go to an ATM, you know, half a block up the street. But, you know, when you move apartments, the place that you've grown up in or that your kids have been raised in, that you call home, there's that attachment. And yeah, it does get in the way because sometimes that emotion will lead you to make a decision in terms of the house that maybe is short-sighted because you maybe can't afford it. Maybe it's not the right thing to do. Maybe it provides you with not enough liquidity to deal with your other expenses. And, you know, we always like to say a, a pipe doesn't burst in a bank account, right? And, yeah. and so there's these these other expenses that, you know, are are maybe not in your face, like the common charges obviously are expenses or taxes and things, but it's those other hidden expenses that, you know, maybe you don't have the liquidity because when you are splitting up your marital assets, you take the house and you have to give a lot of what else you have to balance out that house or the apartment or whatever the, the piece of real estate is, and you can't really afford it. And so, yeah, you know, yeah. it's hard to separate the emotional attachment from the, you know, the reality of, of the finances too. And I know that for us, we always look at things with like financial glasses on and it's not only the cost of the upkeep of the house, but it's when when you eventually do sell, you know, and it may not be for many, many years, but there are a lot of expenses when you sell, whether it's prepping the house, getting it staged, doing repairs, having it repainted, you know, whatever it needs to happen to go on to the market to get the best price. And then, of course, closing costs and broker's fee. And those can be really high numbers. And it doesn't mean that that's, you know, the nail in the coffin and why you should sell while you're still married and you're a couple so that you can both have your fair share of of dealing with those expenses. 
you know, but it's definitely something to think about. It really is. I mean, there's no real large expenses when you take money out of your ATM, right? I mean, <laughs> your money's going in your pocket. I mean, worse comes worse, you might have a dollar. I've seen a few naughty ATMs that like are three dollars. They're usually I don't know if you go to them, but they're usually right next to bars. I don't know if you've noticed that that the really expensive ones are typically right next to bars. <laughs> Pull that card right back out. I'm like, no, I don't exactly. want three dollars. Exactly. And that's over three dollars, let alone <laughs> tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, that can go towards some of these fees. I think a lot of times what we counsel our clients is we we say to them, look, when you're taking the house, it's yours. And that's everything that comes with it. And a lot of times it's, oh, great. I get to stay where I am. I don't have to, you know, move. I can have my couch and my TV. But it also means that you have the other side of it. So you have the expense. Yeah. have to make sure that you can cover those. You have to have the sort of rainy day fund when those things happen. And like you said, Stacey, it's when you sell it, you have those expenses. You have certain taxes and things like that, which I weave to someone like you to usually take care of it and count, help help with our clients. and in that sense, but it's about knowing that, you know, you're not, it's not the same. It's not equal to take a house that's worth X amount with a bank account that's worth X amount. It's just not the same. Yeah. And so I'd love to drill into that because we just talked about selling and that that would be one option for a lot of couples and families. It's the right one. But if you are going to buy out your soon-to-be ex-spouse, let's say a, a million dollar property, a million dollar apartment, and he's taking the million dollars that's in the savings account, not an equal swap. How do you talk to clients about that? And just of understanding that the value you see on that asset, that different types of assets, even the value is the same, a million dollars in all these different buckets that they don't necessarily spend the same. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that always we always look at it as a full picture, right? You have to kind of take that bird's eye view and do the financial analysis when you're splitting things up of saying, okay, I want to find a way in which it's equal. I mean, in New York, it's an equitable distribution state. So it doesn't necessarily have to be equal, but equitable often, you know, gets places, gets people to a place in which it is equal-ish. And I think that that's important to remember, like exactly like you said, you know, you take this million dollar, if he's taking the million dollar home, now you have to look at it. Okay, well, what's the debt on the home? Are we going to subtract the, the mortgage out? Yep. Were there any separate property credits? So in, in New York, marital property is anything that's earned during the marriage. So that includes income, appreciation on that separate property is anything that was earned before the marriage or any gift, inheritance, or personal injury award. So when you're looking at the million dollar value of the apartment, first of all, take the mortgage out, and then you're going to maybe have to take out separate property. So if one, if he put the down payment on, there's a chance that he's entitled to get that down payment back off the top. So now are we really looking at a million dollars there? And that's kind of goes into that analysis. And then, you know, again, down the road, you don't pay you have the million dollars in a bank account, you're not paying really fees on that the same way you're paying your real estate taxes, taxes, the same way you're paying your mortgage, the same way, again, you're paying for the pipe that bursts. And I think that that all needs to come into consideration when you're considering which assets are you going to take versus which assets is he going to take. And Ian, you bring up such an important topic of a separate property. Because we have seen 
separate property come into play most frequently with real estate. And you talk about the scenario where, you know, he put a certain amount down, let's say it was 100,000, you know, that he might be entitled to be able to pull that out and to compensate himself if it was, again, separate property. But I feel like there's a huge amount of gray area because what happens if it was purchased with separate property, but there was significant appreciation during that 20-year marriage, if there had been renovations done and it was renovations were paid from marital money, money just from earnings during the marriage, you know, at that point, it feels like a real gray area of how do you account for all that appreciation and the value? How, how do you account for the fact that some of that appreciation is because they put a huge amount of renovation into it? And, and let's say the person who didn't put the separate property in managed the whole renovation and spent countless hours. I'm just making it more and more complicated. But unfortunately, these are a lot of the questions that people have because that's what they're facing. Yeah, I mean, you just took a a basic situation and even made my head explode. And this is what I do for a living. No, you're right. It it, it certainly is an area where things can get tricky. Sometimes it it could be straightforward. He put in 200,000 on the million dollars that you ultimately earn from the sale. And and so now there's 800 left and you can split it evenly. There's also an opportunity to say, well, if he put that in, you know, maybe he should also be getting a percent, a bigger percentage of the proceeds. But you're right. Then, you know, paying down the mortgage. If you're using yeah. marital funds, there can be a credit for yeah. that. Yeah. Renovations, exactly like you said. And again, the appreciation, if it were just to appreciate because of market forces, there wouldn't be credit yeah. given for that because that's just market forces. It's passive appreciation. But like you said, if you start to do renovations with marital money, now, what portion of that appreciation was just because the market in New York City went up like crazy and what portion yeah. of it is because you put the money in? And then, of course, to make it even more complicated is, okay, well, now one person is using their marital time to be in charge of the renovation. So now are yeah. they entitled to an even bigger credit? And it makes for a situation that is, is gray and it, it can get messy. And that's yeah. just you know, the ins and outs of it, let alone adding, as we talked about before, the emotional aspect of it. And and I think it it could be an opportunity for leverage in a settlement sometimes, because if you know that your spouse really wants the apartment, you know, maybe there's a way to kind of help yourself out with other assets because they want to stay there. And, you know, you don't necessarily care as much because you don't have the emotional attachment. So like you're saying, there's there's so much at play when it comes to real estate that it makes it one of the the hardest things to deal with when couples are separated. I would also tell everyone listening, if there are even aspects of your situation with real estate that were even one piece that kind of goes along with whether it's separate property or there's been a renovation or a lot of this comes down to the lawyer you choose. I have to say that over and over again, because both sides of the coin could be argued about whether or not appreciation is marital or if it's really goes towards a separate property, how much time and effort that you know went into the renovation and marital money. These are all, like we talked about, gray areas and why having a very experienced matrimonial attorney who, who gets this is so important. 
really important. We've talked about now the buyout and we've talked about separate property and and marital money and, and the complications there. But I'd love to focus on the actual mechanisms that have to happen for a buyout. And we talked about, okay, she takes a million dollar property and then he takes another asset. But what happens with the mortgage? If she's taking that house, the deed is going to be transferred to you know, her name and the mortgage has both of their names on it. That can't happen. Right. I think that's, we've discussed this before, Stacey, with, you know, situations that have come up like this. And I think, you know, it really shows why you need to have a team of experts working with you because myself as the lawyer can give the way things should work from the law side. And then you can help with the projecting out of how these finances will actually work. And if it's feasible to do that, and Mm -hmm. then having a mortgage broker who can really help you with something like this, because you're right, you're going to have to, if you are taking over the house and your husband's name is going to have to be taken off of the mortgage. And now the question is, can you qualify? Can you afford the mortgage payments? How can we do that? And so there has to be some creativity amongst the team, whether how are we going to take perhaps spousal support payments that you're receiving and using that to help you qualify for a mortgage? How are we going to count that into your overall monthly income stream and yeah. money coming in to make sure that you can you can pay for these things? And so, so yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we have to think about prior to agreeing that you're going to take the house because you don't want to say, yes, I'll take it. And then down the road, find out, oh, wait, I can't qualify for the mortgage. And exactly. so- this kind of foresight and having this whole group of professionals who are able to help you gets you the best outcome and hopefully gets you through this process as pain-free as possible as and set you up to move forward. I, I 100% agree with you. And, you know, I, I just was talking with a potential client yesterday and introduced her to a, a wonderful mortgage broker, actually the person that we did our panel with, Scott Nadler. And she was being quoted 5% of an interest rate. And that rate, you know, just for everyone listening, it's, you probably know this, but it's astronomically high. It's like 2% higher than what we're typically seeing. And what it came down to is that she wasn't able to show a strong enough financial case. So she was being quoted a subprime mortgage. So this is a fancy way of saying a mortgage that the bank deems as not financially strong or stable. And so they're charging you a much higher rate. And it could happen, but it doesn't mean you want to take that deal and you really want to think long-term. So what happens if they decide, you know what, long-term, neither of us can keep this house. Neither of us can afford it. And We'd like to stay there for four more years until the cut, let's say the kids graduate college, graduate high school, whatever that that is. What does that look like? And what have you seen couples do as they co-own this property as a, a divorced couple? I mean, I think that it's a great option and it certainly shows the way that we can get a little creative based on, you know, each couple's situation and 
you know, this type of setup certainly requires a, a bit of collaboration and the ability for the couple to work together even after mm-hmm. they're divorced. But, you know, oftentimes I'll see it where, let's say he's, he's paying you a, a certain amount in, in spousal support. And instead of paying you, I don't know, $8,000 a month, he's going to pay you $4,000 a month. And that other $4,000 is going to cover the carrying costs on the apartment or the house or whatever it is. And it's a way that the two of you can keep building the equity in the apartment and making that value in it continue to go up. And perhaps the market's bad and that's the reason why you want to do this. So you can wait so that you can you can sell it when you'll get more money for it, which ultimately will benefit you both. But it's mm-hmm. also a way in which you know you can make sure that your housing is secure for a certain number of years. And I think you know you mentioned Stacy children, and obviously that is the top concern, at least to to, to myself and, and my firm, is making sure that our clients are putting their children's needs as number one. And especially if you have kids who are like you said about to go to to college or you want to have it there for them when they come home for college. And then after they graduate, you know, they'll be on their own. It's a really good way to kind of push this out a little bit longer while maintaining a stable environment for you. And then there can be that idea of at the end, you can choose, right? So after the agreed upon period of, I don't know, four years that you've agreed to stay there, you can decide, okay, well, then you can buy him out if you can afford it at that time or you both can sell it and, and use the proceeds. And I think, again, that creates for flexibility and it you know, is an opportunity for someone to work with you, Stacey, to say, look, what, what's the best thing for me to do now, four years, 10 years, 20 years, because then that should shape the way that we do the agreement going forward. Yeah, and I'm glad that you bring up the agreement because if we're gonna be co-owning a property, then, we need to have that in the agreement. And so I'd love to hear from you, like what needs to be in there? You talk about a, a time of, let's say in five, you know, four years or five years. Do you also address who's paying for the mortgage? And if they're paying down the mortgage, who might get a credit? Do you include that in the agreement just to make sure that if there is a sale, there's, there's more clarity on how the proceeds are going to be divvied up? Yeah, I mean, my my background too has had a lot to do with litigation in the real estate world. And I think that I take a look at the agreements that we're negotiating as if I were to be arguing them in court. And so the idea is let's try and cover as many situations as possible with as clear of a language as possible to ensure that we don't ever have to see the inside of a courtroom because yeah. that's an ideal situation for couples who are, sub- are separating is to not be in court. And we'll include things like what happens if there is a repair that needs to be done. Sometimes we'll say if it's a thousand dollars or less, then the person who's living there is going to, it has to pay for it and can do that without any consent of the other party. But if it's something over, then over that amount, let's say, you know, you need a whole new boiler. That's a big expense. And that's something that because the parties are co-owning it, they'll have to agree on it. And perhaps there's then mechanisms to say what happens if they don't agree. Do they pick a professional, they each pick a professional and then they average it out or, you know, they pick two professionals and that professional picks a third person. The idea is that while if the parties are going through with this type of agreement, we're hopeful that they are collaborative enough and working together well enough that they can do it. But what if, 
Yeah. We, you know, we often say we have to live in the worst case scenario as yeah. the attorneys. And that I think makes it so that, look, you know exactly what happens. You know that on this date, which is four years from now, you have to decide whether or not you want to sell it or you want to keep it. If you say that you don't want to keep it, then perhaps he gets the opportunity to keep it. Sometimes we even do something like, you know, flip a coin and whoever wins the coin toss gets the first option to decide whether or not they want to buy it. So, you know, maybe that's not the most fancy legal thing they teach you in law school, but it's something that certainly works. Oh, it does work. It, it does work. It does work. It's, it's either heads or tails. There's no in between it. You know, someone said something to me and I, I always try and remember, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it's kind of like plan for the worst and you'll always be happy and pleasantly surprised by what actually occurs. And, you know, I know that some of the women listening today have concerns about down the line, you know, if they are going to sell either after co-owning or deciding in this process to go ahead and sell to make sure that their spouse is supportive and is in no way hindering that because I have heard absolute awful horror stories of individuals saying, sorry, I know there are people coming over, but I can't show it today because I'm sick or the house looks like a disaster. Is there a way to kind of protect against that too? I mean, I hope to God that wouldn't happen, but I have heard of a few situations that that has. Yeah, I mean, people will do things that they might not otherwise do when they're selling their home that they feel like, wow, now I have to leave this place that was mine, that was where yeah. I came home to and all of that. And so, yeah, unfortunately, there are situations in which that happens. The best that we can kind of do is, is have some sort of financial penalty or just kind of bring up the idea that, look, the longer that this is staying like this and we're not able to sell it, the longer it's going to take for us to get on with our lives, the more money it's going to take because we have to keep paying the different carrying costs associated with it. And it's it's not beneficial if there's children to not know where the next step is going to be, where their next home is going to be, what school they're going to go to. And so, you know, that's a place where, yeah, if they're not agree, they're not doing what they agree to, sure, we can petition to the court, we can make a motion, we can do things like that. But you know, we often try and find ways in which we can reason and say, look, yeah. let's take a step back. This is too expensive. This is too emotionally taxing. Let's do something about it. So, I mean, yeah, there are ways to, to do it, but it's usually not cost effective to do it that yeah. way. And it's emotionally draining. Yeah. And as you're speaking, I'm, I'm seeing $4 signs, which, so I always think of $4 signs because that's what they put next to the most expensive restaurants. And, and then they they darken the ones, you know, and then you have the light as the fourth. So yeah, no, I, I mean, dollar signs are, are just going all over. And ultimately, real estate's a tough one. You know, that's why we wanted, we wanted to tackle this issue with the podcast. And I know we're coming up to time, but is there anything else that you want to make sure that our Financially Ever After listeners know or would consider about real estate and things they need to think about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly to me my biggest advice as a recovered real estate attorney and current matrimonial attorney is let's just take the emotion out of it. And it's so much easier for me to say that when it's not my house and it's not the yeah. place where my kids grew up. But when you take a step back and take the emotion out of it and think about it as, okay, can I afford to stay here? What else am I giving up 
by staying here. I think that when you look at it from that point of view, you ultimately can make a decision that will set you up best for the future, as opposed to just staying in a place that you feel comfortable in, in the short term. And and divorce is not easy. Your life is not going to be the same. It just isn't. And obviously staying in your home is a source of comfort, but let's make sure that you can do it, that you can afford to do it. And then it's in your best interest. And if not, then perhaps there are ways that we can use that to move you on in a better way, whether that's getting value out of it or maybe using it as as a leverage point to say, here, will you take the house if I get this? And I think that if you take the emotion out of it, that's easier to do. Yeah. And back to emotion and a few people listening know this, but but not many. And you do because you've heard me lament. So I've lived in our apartment now here in New York City, same place, raised my children for the last 13 years. And we had a, a pipe that burst. And so we are out of that apartment. We cannot return for probably another, for lucky, another eight months. The whole thing had to be decimated. But the story that I have to say is like when that happened, it was like someone had punched me in that stomach, that like feeling of like, holy crap, like my home is essentially gone. And of course, I will tell you, it was not a pleasant experience, but we moved to a new place. So we're in a a temporary apartment. And I have to say that it's really good. It's really good. And my husband said something. I overheard him speaking to someone else and I, I felt bad about listening in, but I so appreciated what he said that he said, you know, home is where you hang your hat. And he was talking about this flood and I just wanted to hear his perspective. And it was just such a good perspective. And he said, you know, we're really happy. And, you know, we've found a great place to walk the dogs. And, you know, we're a little closer to the subways here in New York. And my gosh, I found the best coffee shop that is half a block away. And it's okay. And I think that that is helpful to know of here I am. I mean, I raised my children and I mean, like all these amazing memories and it's gone. Now, granted, we'll be able to go back. But what I've experienced through this of being in another home, we're just as happy. It's actually kind of exciting because it's a little bit of a new adventure to find out about this new neighborhood. Yeah. And so I really just appreciate you sharing that, trying to take the emotion out. It's hard, but boy, there are other homes that will love you back just as much, if not, you know, if not more, if not more. But Ian, can you share your contact information, how our listeners can get a hold of you as far as the firm you're working with, the best way to reach out to you? And for all of you listening today, I'll make sure that I put that in the show notes too, so that you can contact Ian with any additional questions about real estate. I know you know a whole lot more about divorce than just real estate, but would love for you to to share your information. Yeah, no, of course. And again, thank you so much for having me. The name of my firm is Berkman, Botker, Newman & Shine. We have offices here in New York City, also in Westchester and out on Long Island. My email is isteinberg at berkbot.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn and be happy to answer any questions, whether they're big or small about real estate, about divorce, about the two together. And just to, to be a resource for, for any of the listeners here who, who need that and just need someone to talk to. Well, thank you so much, Ian. It was so wonderful to have you here. And thank you for everyone for tuning into Financially Ever After.
Well, thank you for joining me at Financially Ever After today. We covered so much. I'm really kind of in awe of how much we were able to talk about in such a short period of time. And I hope that it was valuable for you. Real estate is important. Your primary home is, you know, typically where the largest amount of of your assets lie. And so understandably, you want to make good decisions about this going through and after divorce. And, you know, what my hope is, is that today showed you that there are many different ways that you can make it work. But what's really key that Ian shared, and and I will 100% agree, is that you need to have the right team. You need to have the right team to advise you. And if you have questions about whether or not you can afford to keep that home, if you could afford to buy it out, or if you should sell, please reach out. That's one of our specialties. We can model out what that's going to look like for you, not only, you know, in the next five years, but long-term, what that looks like. And, and if you do have to sell, when would that be in the future? You can reach me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. You can visit our website, www.francisfinancial.com. Reach out. I love speaking to individuals. And my hope is that we can give you information, guidance, and resources so that you can make good decisions that you are happy with not only today, but also for the long term. I'm giving you a big hug. Thank you for joining. And I'll be talking to you in two weeks. Thank you.